0: Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madam, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast, and your host today is Carla Reffold. We are joined by Brian Hoogley, co-founder of Side Channel and CISO Life. Brian is viewed as a full-stack CISO and executive security leader and mentor focused on building high-performance security teams, deploying effective operating models and delivering risk management capabilities for global, domestic and local enterprises. Hope you enjoy.
1: Mitchie Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long held relationships, industry knowledge, and data driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. So, Brian, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: So, tell us a little bit about you. Where were you born? Where did you grow up?
2: So uh, I was actually born in Long Island, uh, New York, and bounced around the U.S. quite a bit uh, just because of my dad's work. Um, he actually worked inside the insurance industry for his whole life after he got out of the army. And then um, we just moved around quite a bit. And I kept kind of doing that even after I graduated high school, um, you know, moved out to Colorado for a while. And um, that's where I really kind of sunk my teeth into computer security. And then um, you know, went to college back in New York, and then, then DC after college for about ten years, and now settled just outside of Boston, um, where uh, where I live right now.
1: So let's touch on that. You mentioned sort of where you got your teeth into security. So, do you remember the first time you heard about cybersecurity?
2: Uh, so. Yeah. I think I'm old enough and been doing this long enough that it was called information security back then. Um, <laughs> probably, um, no, I was, I was actually quite young. Um, I was probably about eight when I started working with computers and just kind of, it was my hobby and it was the thing that just, I was just naturally kind of comfortable with. So I think late eighties, very early 386, you know, PC clones, uh, or PCs and IBM clones. And, um, I just, kind of kept working on them and, and messing with them, breaking them, building them, that sort of thing through high school and then ended up getting into uh, security type work as an ethical hacker and a pen tester shortly after high school. Um, and then ended up going to college after a number of years of not, you know, kind of in between bit of a, uh, what, what do you call it, like a, a time in between school, you know, between going, you know, graduating and then actually going to college. so. so um, early sabbatical i guess i don 't know whatever you want to call it, but uh, yeah, that was that, and then um ended up going into a four year program at a state school in upstate New York for network administration and uh, ended up having a pretty good run doing security work there for them and just on my own um, so yeah it was it 's been a thing kind of for a long time since since I was a kid
1: that is a really long time i 'm not sure i 've spoken to anybody that says they they sort of got into it that early did you when did you start thinking about it as a career
2: um i probably right, right after high school when i started started really working in the field um it, it was still seemed just like a probably at the time it just seemed like i had found my hobby that somebody was willing to pay me for so it didn't probably seem like a full career then uh I probably was just young enough to not really ha- have have an understanding of like what I wanted to do long-term You know, I was 18, 19 years old. But I think probably as, as I went through college and by the time I was probably about my second year, um, in, by the time yeah, I was about 24, um, was when I started seeing that, you know what, this, this is definitely something that I could make a full career of having seen where the industry was going by, um, by 2004, 2005. And uh, just kind of watching the way that the trends were going and the need that just kept increasing and increasing, um, you know, that was that was probably the big, big piece that, that set me on the path to to really make it, um, make it the career that I wanted it to be. Um, and then obviously landing the, my first real role at a college, um, con, you know, as a consultant uh, in DC. That that's what really, you know, I, I kind of first tasted, you know this is a lifestyle and a career that i could live in this is the type of work i want to do this is the types of problems i want to solve
1: now you worked your way up and became a cso before setting up your own business side channel so Mm -hmm. what made you decide to branch out on on your own
2: um i think specific to what we're doing and what we focus on because we focus on the mid-market and smaller businesses Um, when I was a CISO for an insurance company here in the Boston area, you know, looking at my own supply chain and seeing that they didn't have anybody like me, um, or my, or my peers in the Boston area that I got to, I've gotten to know and love, um, they didn't have anybody to be able to talk to me about what they were doing or not doing. And no one could like even articulate when I'd asked them, you know, or do those, you know, third-party vendor assessments. And we had a pretty, I feel like a good program that was reasonable. Um, you know, some of these are out there that are just ridiculous and just a, a slew of questions that can't be answered, but really looking at my own supply chain and vendors that I was working with, or that the com- the company I worked for, you know, needed to, to operate, um, that, that gap there is what we really saw as the driver for starting the company. Um, and that, and just the, you know, our first client was a nonprofit, you know, they still are our client and. Seeing that they couldn't afford a full-time CSO, but desperately needed the that type of advice and guidance, um, you know, call it altruistic, call it call it whatever you want. But we we felt, you know, there's a better way to provide services to these groups because, you know, small or large, the problem's still the same, um, and you still deserve some level of support. You know, if you're a small guy or a mid-market guy, just as you know, it shouldn't just be affordable. It shouldn't cybersecurity security shouldn't just be something that's available when it's affordable um you know and there's just not a lot of i think options out there to make CISO really as a service the, or access to cso's you know an affordable option for folks you really just kind of have one option mostly which is hire somebody full-time and that's that's expensive and it's just not it's not in the budget for a lot of companies that are you know in that mid-market and smaller
1: Now, um, I've done some research over the past year, looking specifically at CISOs. And of the CISOs that move on from their role, only about 20% are actually going into other CISO positions. A lot of them are doing um, something similar to what you're doing or becoming advisors or consultants. um, And then a few doing kind of the virtual CISO model. So is there anything behind that 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 you think that resonates with you?
2: Um, I think there's probably a level of burnout that's associated one with being in the role and two with being in a corporate structure and and what's required of the CISO. Um, I I think that very much exists. There's a lot of discussion about, you know, burnout and mental health inside of the CISO community that um, I'm glad is being talked about more and more by my peers um, and, and other professionals. And I think there's just a, you know, coupled with probably realizing your own value if you're good at it that you can you know strike out on your own and, and do pretty well for yourself um, and solve some really interesting problems for multiple different people and uh, you know some people have the consulting gene in them and they can they can do it really well they know how to you know make it happen some people don't and that's fine um, but I think I think there is an outside pressure to kind of go see what else is out there and uh, maybe it's because you want you know, a little bit more sanity in your life, maybe a little bit more work-life balance because the the role of the CISO at a large organization in a full-time capacity is a very stressful one. It's, there's a lot of demand, you know, on you as a as a leader of the organization, as, a, as an executive, as the senior, most knowledgeable person, ideally for cybersecurity inside that organization. You know, a lot of people are looking at you, there's a lot of pressure there. And, you know, maybe some people just, you know, just say, Hey, look, I need to go do something else. You know, I, I can definitely um, see, see that. And then there's some people who've been in that role at, you know, a single company for, you know, a long time, I mean, decades. And, you know, they've just gotten used to the culture and the culture's gotten used to them and they're very effective and they wield the right amount of influence to be able to stay there. And they're comfortable with the the pressures that are put on them. Um, You know, I think it's, it's all different types of people, right. You know, just kind of, Uh, it fits into your personality and your behaviors and and the culture that you're in. Um, But I've actually, it's interesting you say that because I've seen a lot of folks who leave a CISO role and immediately go to try to find a new one and land in another CISO role somewhere else. Um, I've I've seen, I've seen at least here in the U S or in the Northeast, less people leaving a full-time role and striking out on their own. But that's, that's good to actually hear that more people are consulting because I think it's going to broaden access to that type of talent to more companies that need it. And
1: I think that's a great way to look at it. You know, there are companies that can't afford it. Um, so it's not just you. There's a, there's a few of you now. So how how has that evolved since you sort of got the idea and, and started the business?
2: Uh, so, yeah, it's originally it was just my partner and I wanted to just really focus on that vendor supply chain and finding, you know, companies that could just use our help. It was, it's actually a side business. That's the kind of a, a play on the, the term uh, is how we came up with side channel. Um,
1: oh, okay. I like that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> plus at the, I think at the time in 2017, there was a lot of those Intel, um, you know, uh, attacks like Spectre and I think it was ghost was the other one that were really the deemed these side channel attacks. Um, and you know, the, the most unreal, you know, the, <laughs> the unfunniest or maybe funniest version is that, uh, the domain name was available too. So kind of all the stars aligned and, uh, <laughs> and it just worked out. Um, but yeah, now it's, it's good. We've grown to, uh, so, you know, four partners in the company, uh, we're an LLC and, uh, roughly 12 or 13, I forget today's count of, um, you know, former CISOs or, or current CISOs delivering, you know, to clients. So it's been um, it's it's been a really great growth um, and it's it's been a really great journey to build this out. And it's one of our hallmark, it's really our hallmark differentiator from everyone else is that, you know, side channel is made up of CISOs. You know, that's where you're gonna get your advice and guidance from somebody who's really been in that role. You kind of see everybody else is just doing security consulting. <laughs>
1: And where do you see it going over the next couple of years?
2: Yeah, the, the, the demand is increasing, especially considering today's environment with everyone kind of working from home and you know, really focusing on remote capabilities. We're a remote first and remote native organization have been since day one. So being able to navigate that space and operate really well inside of the, the remote workforce space uh, and, and kind of for, even forced remote um, environment is I think key um, because not everybody's going to be able to have you on site. Um, plus you want to be able to pull talent, you know, the right type of talent from wherever um, a lot of it is more like talking to your outside you know, legal counsel. You know, you don't have them coming into your office all the time to give you legal advice. You're on the phone with them. You're doing video conferences. They're, you know, creating governance for you and, and structuring and helping you make decisions so I think the less of a reliance and a view of this, you know, in person, um, although there's a lot of you know great times getting in front of clients and, and getting to, you know, see their operations and being there. But that's been, I think, one big change and, and one piece that's been adopted. Um, and then just, you know, probably just an increase in demand with the regulations, the way that they're moving and the direction that they're headed with, you um, you know, especially New York state kind of setting the the standard uh, for the rest of the states to follow, requiring a CISO for certain organizations underneath different laws, um, and then allowing for virtual CISOs to exist uh, or to fill that role. I I think there's just going to be a big, you know, pickup in that space. It's going to look a lot like the managed services space for, you know, endpoint detection response and, you know, managed SOC, MSSP, that type of thing. Um, This outsourced model where companies can now go kind of access that type of talent and uh, not have to bring somebody in in house is just going to drive the demand for that type of talent up.
1: Now, we see lots of people who maybe have the knowledge and the expertise to do this, but actually to run a business um, and to to build it in the way you have is a different set of skills. So what advice were you given that's helped you along that journey?
2: Uh, Don't be afraid to ask for help is probably the biggest one. Uh, You know, this is the first business that I've built, you know, and I'm I'm so fortunate to have the partners that I have, you know, uh, Taylor and Akash and Nick to, you know, play to their strengths um, and know where each of us excel and, and where we have to lean on each other to be able to make decisions. So, you know, that's, it's, that's really no joke of an area is building a business, you know, invoicing and HR and, you know, building your channel and sales and all that is all things that, you know, you probably don't think of as a practitioner, you know, before you step out on your own, you're like, Oh, I'm just going to go, you know, be a consultant and be great. And, you know, maybe I can build a great business. And in order to do that, you really need to build an amazing team and have a really clear vision and, you know, be accountable and, and really drive towards your vision. And that doesn't, that's not something that just happens that requires a substantial amount of work and, um, investment, and then, you know, getting the right people to, to play to their strengths and work on those areas are incredibly, incredibly valuable, you know, you can't do it all on your own. And I don't think anybody expects you to, and you really shouldn't expect that of yourself either. So the advice I've gotten is really just, you know, find the right players, find the right team members, the right partners to fill in those gaps where, you know, you're weak or where you need help. And, uh, you know, just make that part of the team and make that happen.
1: How did you find the people around you? Uh,
2: I think a lot lot of it was proximity. You know, Taylor and I um, were introduced to each other at a conference here in Boston back in uh, 2016, 2017, and just struck up a great friendship and had so much in common because we're the same age, same background, same family dynamics, and, you know, the same view of the industry where it currently is with regards to maybe how vendors are playing in the space and, what was maybe needed um, by a a lot of companies. And, you know, just both having that vision, that similar vision is what allowed us to just realize that, you know, we could, we should probably work together too, if we can. Um, And, you know, that just, that just set everything in motion. And then he knew Akash because, you know, he, they both come out of Buffalo, New York and that scene. And uh, that community there is really tight knit and really strong. So, you know, we were introduced to him and brought him in and then, You know, I've known Nick um, for a good portion of my life, and we've bounced around inside and outside of the DoD together, um, and, you know, bringing him in to be our CTO was really just kind of the icing on the cake. So, you know, we've got four really strong folks, you know, who want to build a great company, who now really trust each other, and, you know, just again, each of us have our own, you know, real good strengths, and that's been that's just how it kind of built. It's been, it's been a really interesting kind of organic happening over the last two years, and especially in this last year, year plus, since we took it full time.
1: Now, having been a CISO, and I imagine sort of having been sold to by a lot of vendors and having people try and get your attention, um, what advice do you have for companies that are trying to do that? How can you get in front of a CISO?
2: Yeah, this is this is a great talk that um, I know we've given at conferences. I know Taylor's been very passionate about. It. I've I've not given a public talk about it, but you know, in talking privately with, with my friends who you know are VPs and, and heads of sales at large organizations, um, it, it, I think the biggest thing for security vendors is to just first really listen and understand what the problem is if if they have a problem, you know. That, that the client has, your potential client. Um, I think the wrong approach that, that is, I think starting to be knocked out is the one of, oh, I have this product or service and you obviously have the problem that my product or service solves, so let's look at it. And you know as a CISO, as a buyer, I would see a lot of that and I would, it just immediately turns me off. I'm just like, you know what? You, you didn't even like wait to hear if I even had that issue. How, how can you help me solve something that you, you're not even listening to me about? Um, that's been, I think, the biggest thing that I've seen that I've asked for. I've even worked with, you know, VARs, um, you know, my last organization to, you know, these value resellers. And I even gave them the opportunity to, you know, just listen to, here's my whole structure. Here's my whole plan. This is where I want to go. I'm giving you an opportunity to come back to me and tell me how you would solve it. And I can tell you one of them completely struck out because they literally just came back and just gave me how they do things and they didn't integrate in what my real asks were. And I was like, right, it was pretty easy right there to say, you know what, this isn't going to work out. There's other ones that I've worked with that took the time to really listen and understand what the issues were and then come forward with possible solutions and you know, ideas on how to solve those and then let me make the decision on my own um, that's, that's, I think the biggest thing is, so if there's anybody listening who, who wants advice on, you know, how to get in front of CISOs, you know, get into their networks, get, you know, get to understand what their issues are, you know, really learn about that client, about, uh, the risks that they have and, and then find the solutions. Don't go in with the product that you have or whatever as being the answer to something that they may, may or may not affect them.
1: I think that's such good advice. And it's it's hard for these companies at the moment. Um, And I don't know about you, but I feel like there's a lot of negativity towards vendors in the marketplace over the last few months in particular, you know, lots of people criticizing them uh, on social media for, you know, essentially just doing their job. Um, How do you think those people can actually get attention to, you know, get the attention of a CISO to be able to go and understand that problem?
2: I think there's a there's a lot of good opportunities inside of channels and in inside some of those larger groups that are selling, you know, a lot of different products. So, I mean, for product security folks, right, you know, they've they're they they originated the idea somehow, right? They saw a problem in the market and they came up with a solution and they got funding or investment to be able to start building out that solution. And now they got to go sell it. I understand that. But not everybody might have that problem or they might be in the middle of a budget cycle that doesn't allow them to go use your product to solve it. Um, So understanding that is is probably key. Like, where are you in your buying cycle, right? Where, Where are you on actually addressing this issue? Is this something that is so new as far as being solved that I need to fix it today? Or am I still dealing with, you know, asset discovery and asset management? Like, you know, very basic level or fundamental security, you know, hygiene issues. Um, you know, jumping somebody all the way to like doing, you know, very end state, you know, net, like really new bleeding edge type of security comp- uh, products or services, that's not, that's just gonna confuse CISOs and, and kind of frustrate them. And they're gonna just dismiss you. So I think you gotta find the right markets. Like where are people in their security maturity? Um, and then, you know, I, I've i always liked conferences. I've always liked meetings, meetups, even informal ones, um, you know, like even smaller dinners. and. Get together is where you get the opportunity to get, you know, just get in front of folks and just allow for the conversations to happen naturally about things and, you know, wait, you know, it's, you know, sales is hard because you can't wait. But at the same time, you know, the the ones that seem to work are the ones that are are asked for. Right. The sales that are asked for seem to be the ones that work out better. The products stay longer. The services see, you know, there's a more of a growth in services for for that um, for that vendor. Uh, the ones that are just kind of like put out in front of you and like shoved down your throat, you know, no one feels good about that. Um, so I don't know. I think the other piece is you've got probably a lot of CISOs and a lot of folks who are probably pretty good at, uh, you know, understanding risk and addressing risk, but not very good at purchasing or or navigating, you know, the vendor, you know, the vendor supplies. Uh, you know, supply chain or, or just the vendor space and even knowing how to be a good negotiator or buyer or even how to just like test things or, or go through things. Some, you know, the CISO role is very dynamic and it requires a lot. And, and some people are really good at aspects of it, but maybe not good at all of them. Uh, so that, that could probably be, you know, a portion of it. I think it's on, I think it's on both sides, you know, maybe two partially of salespeople and two, you know, misunderstanding of, uh, of the CISOs.
1: I think that's a really good point as well. You know, CISOs might not be good negotiators and, and good buyers. That's not why they're in the role. Um, right. But we probably wouldn't think about that all that much. And let's hope we can get back to some conferences and uh, and some networking events pretty soon, right?
2: Yes, yes, that would be nice. <laughs> I do miss seeing everybody here in the Boston area. Um, so I think it's a really great community that that um, is up here. Some really good events that go on and uh, it's really good to see you know, yeah, you see the same people, but it's, those are really great conversations and and times to have where you can step away from the office and engage with, you know, people that you like and you understand, you respect their opinions, especially when it comes to, you know, solutions that you're looking for, right? Like I, I want to ask my peers and my friends here in the space, what did they use to solve that problem? How did it turn out? What did you like? What did you not like? That influences my behavior and my buying decision. Probably much more than me just looking at a product and talking with a sales team or sales engineering team.
1: Yeah, that referral recommendation route. Exactly. So we've touched a little bit on remote working, but are you seeing um, the you know the coronavirus and everything doing anything else to the cybersecurity industry?
2: Uh, I don't know if it's happening yet, but I have a and predictions are a weird thing to do, but I, I've definitely been kind of noodling on this idea of the impact that this will have on the commercial real estate um, space and obviously the economics and the the downturn that it's had. And I I think there's gonna be a very interesting kind of alignment where businesses are really gonna be taking a hard look at the property and the assets, the buildings that they have on the books um, and, and start wondering, do we really need these? because we just went through something that showed us that our workforce doesn't need to actually be here to do their work. Now this isn't every every company, but I think a lot of companies are gonna have this, this moment where they really look at their, at their assets and wonder if they need to keep them anymore. That I think is gonna have a very interesting knock-on effect to CIOs and CISOs, um, because if you take away the building where everyone needs to work, now you don't require the infrastructure to support you know, 100, 200, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 people in a building. If you don't need the infrastructure anymore, how, you know, what happens to that security stack and that investment? Does, does that, where does that go? How does that still function? Because those capabilities that you're deploying are still needed, but now they need to be, you know, um, put in place a different way. And now you need to really go to where the endpoints are. Um, you know, where your workers are and really protect the endpoints wherever they are and then centrally protect your data. So I think out of this is going to come, you know, this this removal of assets, an increase in cloud um, uh, adoption. Um, I'm actually that's one area I'm already seeing a a lot of is this rapid, rapid move to to that. And then uh, uh, differentiating the security stack from being these monolithic you know, we're finally going to get out of these traditional, you know, protect the data center, protect the corporate office uh, infrastructure stack to a, a more nimble, either edge or um, endpoint uh, uh, security stack, which will still deploy those same capabilities, but just in a different manner, uh, different means. So that's that's the way I'm looking at it. I, I don't I don't know a lot of that, again, depends on if CFOs and companies are going to start reducing their physical footprint and the amount of buildings and office space that they have. So if that doesn't happen, my prediction, I don't think happens as much, but if it does, I think that's the knock-on effect you'll see starting to happen over you know, one to two quarters after that, uh, uh, that reduction uh, in, in building and office space
1: so that's really interesting so everybody's impression seems to be hey we're all working from home and it's all fine and we can all function um but from your point of view then is this like a temporary solution and actually if we're going to do this on a longer term basis we need to have or many companies will need bigger transformation projects to make this a long-term investment
2: yeah i think i think this is Again, I'm not an epidemiologist, although a lot of CISOs have been forced into that role you know, in the last eight months or eight eight weeks, which has been really interesting. So this is this is coming from a non-scientific, you know, just just Brian's view of kind of watching kind of how events are unfolding. But, yeah, I believe that we will I believe we'll have a second wave in going into the fall. So we will have to be in some version of this um, at some point again this year. And who's to say that, you know, politically or Socially, we won't dip our toes back into a version of this in the next couple of years to come, right? Who's, who, who knows, right? Say we do, um, if that's the case, would it be, wouldn't it be better, be better to be prepared for that by adopting a more remote friendly, a, a secure remote workforce and capabilities than not? Because the, a lot of the companies that are struggling through these last eight weeks nine weeks and then going into the next are the ones that were really unprepared to even do this so for them to either not do anything over this next kind of this lull that i'm that i've seen or seen in research over the next couple months as we maybe re-emerge and then if there's a second wave if we don't take that lull time to really get ourselves together for a possible second event or a second you know wave well those companies are going to be in a much worse spot. And then if they don't plan to do remote work just more naturally, long term I think there's going to be an impact. I mean, people when they're going back into the job market are going to want to work for a company that's remote ready, not one that's not. You know, if I'm thinking about my career and I'm entering the workforce, I'm changing jobs. I want to work for a company I know is going to be ready for something like this, who's adopted it, because I I don't want to have to risk losing my job because you weren't, you know, you, you know, company weren't you know, remote ready, weren't, you know, capable of this. I, I think there's some things that play into people's thinking about who they're going to work for. And then again, just kind of being prepared. Uh, the other piece I'll, I found interesting, and I've done a couple talks on this, is everyone's BCDR planning to date has just gotten, completely gone out the window because all their plans involved everyone collectively leaving the building that apparently got hit by the meteor or, or the fire, because that's the scenario everyone always brings up. And everyone collectively goes over to one location and works there. Well, this whole event just made that entire scenario go out the window, right? I mean, too many people have their their business continuity plans built around everyone collectively working in one other new location for the foreseeable future. So the planning now needs to change to accommodate, no, you're just going to work from home or you're going to work from wherever you can. Um, And how do we now adjust for that?
1: Well yeah, or plans focused on them moving operations to a different country and you know, not necessarily focusing on all your countries being unavailable.
2: Exactly. Yeah, there's a major impact on um a couple of places that, you know, I've I've had discussions with that they looked at, you know, India and Singapore as their as their, you know, go to and their fallback and still you know that just went right out the window. Now suddenly, you know, two other countries that you were planning on depending on having your workforce, you know, be used are now in the same predicament you are. So, how is that going to affect your thinking, right, and your plans? It's. I think there's a lot of things that were taken for granted going into this that people in IT and CIOs and, and even some CISOs had, and uh, they just, you know, it, it, and now we're seeing the fallout and. You know the weaker ones are going to be the ones that are going to get you know negative really negatively impacted, and the stronger ones are the you know could could adjust and they'll be the ones that shine.
1: We've seen a massive decline in the investment companies have made into their business continuity and DR teams over the past five or ten years. Do you sure. think companies will invest more in that now, or do you think they'll say, "Well we survived, so we probably didn't need those people anyway?
2: No, I, I think the ones that, that do survive, um, I saw a scurry of questions and, and people reaching out, you know, asking for help around BC and DR. And I think that's, you know, the, the question that's coming down from boards, that's coming down from senior management, you know, you know what do we need to adjust in our, in our DR planning, our BC planning? What, what did we not do? What could we have done better? Um, I think, you know, you look back, you know, what happened, you know, 10 years ago, that really made, you know, made people put a lot of money into BC and DR, right? 9-11, you know, there was an incident that, that triggered that type of spending because there was the, you know, that location no longer exists. What do we do? Scenario play out. And time, you know, eventually just kind of happens and people forget, unfortunately, and it becomes less and less of a priority because it's not as real. Now, suddenly again, this is real. And yes, people, I would say that companies are surviving, but I wouldn't say that they're, they're thriving, really, as, as well as maybe they were before this happened. You know, there's there's a difference between just kind of keeping the lights on and, and, and actually growing. So I see a, a lot of investment and, and rethinking about how to do this. And I think you're probably going to see a lot more focus on security as part of that planning rather than just a traditional kind of, you know, uh, IT-centric view of of all of it. Um, that's gonna. That's, I think, gonna be the big change. Um, I I don't know if it's gonna be a massive amount of spending, but I definitely you'll definitely see a lot of focus inside of the BC and DR space over the next you know eighteen months.
1: Now you support smaller businesses who maybe already didn't have the money to invest in security. Do you think they will? of take this opportunity to make that investment do you think it makes them understand it more or do you think with finances being even more squeezed it's going to be pushed even further down the line
2: yeah i mean working with smaller organizations it's always the trade-off and i just i don't know right now where 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 small businesses are going to be in their thinking of what they can spend money on you know if given the chance i think they're not going to spend the money on a security component because, you know, they've got a you know, they've got so many other priorities that they've got to fund and a bit of a hole they might need to dig themselves out of. This might just not be the space the area to spend just yet. Um, you know, small businesses are, are, are a tricky one to kind of better understand, you know, what their spending apps are going to be, especially around security. I think the ones that we're going to spend on security and invest are going to do that anyway, because they realize, you know, the the risk and the impact to their organization that uh, a security incident can have. So they're going to address those. But, um, you know, by and large, I'm not I'm not really sure where the whole kind of, you know, small business space is going to end up landing as far as their spend.
1: Well, one of the things that has pushed them into making that investment is obviously that third party risk that you mentioned earlier on. Um, We've seen a large number of the attacks being driven through weaker third parties into bigger organizations. So what do you think is going to happen there? Do you think that will increase?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's one area that you can't escape. So, you know, when the regulation comes out, when a new law comes out, when your board tells you, you need to focus on security and when a customer starts asking you about your security posture. Those are things that will, that are the catalysts that will force companies to invest in their security because they have to. And and what they're going to do is they're going to look at, you know, how much money am I making from this client? You know, what's my revenue versus what's the cost going to be to uh, address the security risks so that I can meet their, their needs. That is definitely something that's going to force the hand. Um, so that will, you know, that will continue to grow. But you know, if if a small business doesn't have that, you know, um, catalyst behind it or or reason, you know, they're not forced to do it, they're not going to spend the money. Um, It's probably why you saw a lot of companies really making investments after New York State um, DFS went into play, because it required, um, you know, everyone to who was falling underneath that. And that's a lot of insurance, and a lot of finances to really make investments where they otherwise kind of push things off. So now that that's having, a, you know, that and other regulations um, and larger companies are starting to put, uh, you know, that focus on smaller businesses. Yes, you'll, you'll start kind of seeing them making moves as well.
1: And if companies bring you in, are these big changes they need to think about making or are there small things that you can help them do?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting, but a lot, of, a lot of work that we do with folks is, you know, just relooking at the foundational Components, right? The controls, the building blocks of security, and um, you know, a lot of times too, it's maximizing current investments. You know, a, 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 how many organizations are Office three sixty five Microsoft, you know, users uh, and companies and and aren't implementing multi factor authentication? Uh, you, you wouldn't believe how many, right? It's and what's great is it's like, look, you you have this capability inside of your licensing, you already have it, just Turn it on, roll it out, educate your workforce on how to use it. It's a simple thing. And it has such far reaching impacts, positive impacts to the security of your organization. So, you know, there's an area that does not require a lot of investment. It just requires some thought thought and some time to make sure that you architect it and set it up and roll it out right. But you already own it. So just, you know, taking that approach. I think there are some areas, you know, if you're really particular about intellectual property that you have or you know, if you're, you know, falling underneath certain regulations, there's going to be some investments around the systems that you have. But I think if you're smart about the, uh, the advice that you're getting, and, you know, that's basically what we're trying to do is, is help people spend, you know, smartly the, the, the limited amount of resources and dollars that they have on bettering their cyber posture. Um, so I think a lot of it is within, you know, their reach, um, you know, the do it yourself version is, is, is always out there too, you know, NIST, uh, you know, has the great standard out there for organizations to be able to follow. It's not even the full NIST uh, cybersecurity framework, the CSF. They have a small business framework that's available, and just going through and seeing, am I doing all of these things? But it just comes down to making the time and making it a priority for yourself and your business to uh, to go through it. Uh, just kind of sitting back and expecting it—you're it, in a good spot and not checking on your controls or your, your postures—just a recipe for disaster. <laughs>
1: And I guess making it, um, you know, not so scary, you know, I'm, you know, security is something that maybe you can do for yourself if you put a bit of time and sort of learn, learn what you need to do. But it feels like a really scary big thing that maybe you as a business owner don't want to touch.
2: Right. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is I don't, I don't think it is. I I liken a lot of it to, to getting legal advice and, and working with your lawyer you know, you can read it, you probably don't understand it as well as they do. You probably have never seen it exercised, you know, or understand the intent, but, um, or seen kind of the positive or negatives that have come out of the law, but you reach out to and you're comfortable to working with an outside law firm or, or your legal team to um, tackle those issues. The same thing should be looked at with cybersecurity. You know, it's, it, it's not scary. It's not magical. It's not, there's no mystery to it. Um, but at some point, you know, it's just, it's a matter of understanding some of the basics and then working with experts if you're not comfortable doing it to, you know, help execute and prioritize the rest. But I don't think it's something and maybe, you know, again, I'm biased. Right. I've been in this space for a long time. So, you know, I kind of my my wife uh, reminds me all the time of that. that you know, it, it might be second nature to me, but it's not to everybody else that I'm working with. And I got to remember that. Um, and that's good advice. But, I, you know, I think if you take some time there. The information's there, the standards are there, the the basics that you can follow through are there, and I think they are, um, you know, attainable and and not a scary area.
1: Now, I mean, since you were eight is is a long time for for anybody, so um, what do you do that allows you to keep learning and keep evolving within the industry?
2: I I unfortunately read a lot, and and you know what I read is I I read a lot of, like, missed publications and documents. Um, probably stuff that most people look at and are like, oh, I do not want to touch that um, or probably steer clear from. But I don't know why, but I like it. Um, I it, it, It's a way to help solve problems. It's also, you know, being a U.S. citizen, I like making and putting my tax dollars to work. You know, this is stuff that's been put out there by the government that's quite actionable, quite useful. Um, that's incredibly helpful. The, the other piece on the technical side, you know, is just, you know, going out and talking to and asking, you know, looking at demos and looking at technologies and talking to my peers about, you know, what are they seeing work and, you know, what new problems are, are, are going on. Um, and then the last one, you know, barring getting in, per, in front of the people, you know, I'm in a number of different great Slack uh, groups um, and, and other, you know, forums that, you know, people are just so amazing in this community that that just share their knowledge and, and what they've learned or things that they're doing. And, you know, sometimes I'll just, you know, I'll spend hours just kind of going through all these different GitHub um, repos of, of folks who have you know built this little tool or that tool or that capability just to learn, like, what problem did you solve? Like, why did you build this? You, you built it for a reason. And, and, you know, the things I've learned from that has been, you know, amazing things that I was like, Oh, I didn't even realize you could do that. And it's like, Oh yeah, obviously you can. And somebody built a tool to either find it or stop it. And, uh, you know, doing those things have been great because then you can start really integrating that type of thinking into you know your consulting, your advice for the program, if you're you know a full time CISO, the program you're building, and start really understanding like is this a risk that I need to you know worry about or or address, and or is this something I just got to keep in mind for the future? And um, that's it's kind of how I spend you know my time on uh, staying current. Um, probably there's tons of other ways, but that seems to work for me. <laughs>
1: brilliant well we end each podcast with 10 quick fire questions so i need you to answer the the first thing that comes to mind okay (laughs) (laughs) okay so first one what turns you on professionally
2: uh oh man that's bad sorry um can i phone a friend um (laughs) uh, I, i you know what i like i like transparency on um discussions and information just like kind of just getting the full the full view right up front that's probably a big thing
1: what turns you off professionally
2: um not taking i guess not taking my opinion into consideration when we're trying to problem solve um although that's probably some probably could be viewed as a negative on me but uh, you know i like to at least throw the ideas out there
1: how do you unwind
2: uh, bike riding you know I I try to get out on my bike or just you know hang out with with my daughter and my wife um, you know just outside of being in front of a computer or a screen.
1: <laughs> now this one might be quite good for you given when you when you started your interest in security so what profession other than your own would you like to try?
2: Uh, so before I decided to go into this I really had total plans to become a, a, a history teacher like a high school history teacher I, I would have love to do that. Um, I think I get the luck out now because starting in the fall, I will be uh, a professor and teaching at Boston College here in, uh, in Boston. So I get to live out that dream still.
1: Amazing. And we're, we're all homeschooling now anyway, right? So. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> what activity gives you the most energy?
2: Um, probably biking. Yeah, that's, that's probably the one that I feel really great, either on the bike and immediately getting off the bike.
1: Who is your biggest inspiration?
2: Um, it sounds kind of crazy, but Jack Kerouac uh, is probably my favorite writer and has probably gave me the thinking or, or at least the way to think about life and just kind of how to live since I've been in high school, since my uh, Mrs. Maddox, my high school history teacher, told me that I needed to read that book uh, on the road and it's uh, forever changed my life.
1: If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject?
2: Open source.
1: You are at your best when you're doing what?
2: Problem solving.
1: If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart?
2: Hug your family.
1: And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gate?
2: Oh uh, that I did everything right that I could. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that's a fair one. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us today. I think that's uh, been really useful for um, for small businesses in particular. So um, how do people get in touch with you if they want to learn more?
2: Uh, you can find us at Side Channel, one word com. Um, you can reach out to us through that or on LinkedIn. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel, which I was lucky enough to have Carl on uh, last week for. He's an amazing guest. So thanks for uh, lending him out to me for a little while. Um, yeah, you can find us there on uh, the website or uh, LinkedIn or YouTube.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe. And for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.